The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 6 through 8 verse 5. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who will dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of this sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Natali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Megan, for that reading this morning. It's a long one. It's difficult. You did a great job. Well, welcome again. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. And... Um, it is uh, our honor that you're here. We're very glad that you're here with us this morning. I've got a lot of work to do. Uh, before I do, I want to say a couple things. Number one, um, I got to um, graduate, get my master's in theological studies this past weekend. <clears throat> and uh, pr pretty excited about that. But also, I'm just, just thank you for... Uh, being a good church and helping me and enabling me and to, to do that and then even encouraging me to do that and to pursue that. Um, it, it's been uh, something I've been working on for the past three years, kind of behind the scenes, don't talk much about it, uh, but really, um, obviously my wife has, is amazing. She, has, she helps me. Um, a lot of times I go, I got to go. I got to go study. I got to go work. And, uh, and she takes care of the things for me. And so I appreciate that. And I appreciate you and your, and your constant encouragement. So um, haven't decided, more than likely I'm not done. So more than likely, classes will start in January. Um, next thing I have, uh, next thing I want to say is uh, we are doing something kind of special for Christmas Eve. We have um, two gatherings. We have a gathering here, um, and the time of that gathering is seven. <clears throat> I was waiting for the Holy Spirit on that one. My assistant. Uh, but the reason we do a late, the reason we're doing a late night gathering, part of what we want to do is we want to kind of shape family traditions around the church, around God and around God's people. And so we know Christmas Eve, you do family things and there's a lot of pressure from his side and her side to decide on what are we going to do as a family. Well, we, we kind of want the church to help, help settle the score there and say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a late night Christmas Eve gathering. It's going to be a part of our tradition. Part of our tradition, if you've got young kids, let them wear their pajamas. Here's what we want you to do. Go enjoy the day, enjoy the evening, enjoy dinner with your family, and then get those kids in their jammies, and then bring them here at 7 o'clock. We're going to have a, it's a kid-friendly, family-friendly service. It's going to be short. It's going to have candle lit. We're going to sing hymns, sing Christmas songs. And then you can take those kids right out, and you can put them right in bed. They're already ready. All right, if you're, you know, you can even pack your purse with the bedtime snack. 
And so during service, give the bedtime snack out, keeps them entertained, take them home, put them right in bed, and then do what you want to do that morning. So we're doing that over here. Now, if for some reason you can't structure your, this tradition around your family, we do have a 5.30 gathering over in Moline as well that you can go to. I just wanted to throw that out there, offer you um, those two options, and we hope that you would worship with us on Christmas Eve. Now, this is the second Sunday of Advent, uh, the season where we look back at Christ's first coming, we look forward to his second coming, and we ask Christ to come in every single heart here today. And today we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation. I have an almost impossible task ahead of me this morning, over two chapters, um, just in one of my commentaries and reading on, this, on, these, on these two texts was over 110 pages this week. Um, and I have to somehow cram all of that down into, sh into a shorter sermon than normal because we got to celebrate God saving people in our church. And so it's, it's a good reason to be pressed for time. So I better just shut up and pray and let's get after it. Father, I need you. I need your help. We need your help. Not only is this a difficult passage maybe to understand, and especially it's a difficult passage to stomach in the 21st century that we live in. We see wrath poured out on all the world, and we don't like it. It concerns us. Maybe we've had preachers manipulate this text in the past to scare people into professions of faith or into conversions or used to marginalize others, used to use as a power play over others. And so we tremble before it. And Father, we also profess that this is your word. And so we believe it. We believe it's from you. We believe it can instruct us. And so we ask that you would do that today. Father, I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that I'm a sinful man capable of mistakes. I prove it every day. And I ask that you would hide me somehow behind this pulpit, behind your word today, and you would speak your infallible word through me, a sinful man. God, would you do this for the good of your people and for our joy as a church? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be working through chapter 6, chapter 7, and the first few verses of chapter 8. If you've got your Bible, please open it up with us. Now, the reason we're doing this is I think it's best to cover the breaking of the seven seals as a group. That helps us see the main idea and not to get too bogged down in some of the details. Um, I want us to remember, now let me, just, let me just say, this is where many people get really weird in studying the book of Revelation. Okay, we're going to try not to do that, all right? It might still seem a little weird, but we're going to try not to do that this morning. This book was given by God through Christ, through the Apostle John, to churches in Asia, and it was given to these churches, and this is what they did. They got this letter from the Apostle, and they would read it from cover to cover in the gathering, right? Preacher had a busy week. Preacher's locked up in jail. Just read the book of Revelation. And so they would get up and read from cover to cover. That means that the book of Revelation is really meant to be digested as a story, as a whole, right? It's very easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees and get caught up in a lot of the details. It was not, this book of Revelation was not given to the church for them to speculate on its confusing details. Rather, it was to inspire them, listen, to worship God and continue to trust him as they go through many forms of sufferings and difficulties that Christians inevitably go through on, in life on this earth. Now, studying this book is meant to have the same effect on us this morning. It is not meant to go and to start parsing out every little thing and trying to create all, some kind of graft on when you can figure out Jesus is coming back and what's it going to look like and how does the, the nation of the you know, United States of America play into that, right? It's not meant for you to do that. It's meant to inspire us to place our hope in an unshakable God. For that God is the only one who reigns sovereign and supreme over all human history and of all humanity's future. 
And what we'll see this morning is that every other container that we place our hope will fail us. So in one sense, this could be fear-mongering. This could be, you, you could be, you could, you could be just driven to fear by reading this text. But in another sense, this is a great gift to us because our hope is a precious thing. And we don't want to put our hope in a container that can fail us. We to put our hope in something secure. Now let me do my best to catch us up to speed this morning, to situate us in this text. Here's what's going on. The Apostle John one of Jesus' 12 apostles. He is a pastor, and he's been put in prison on an island called Patmos. This island is just off the coast of, coast of Greece. If you go there now, they will charge you a fee, and you can go into a cave where they ultimately tell us John wrote this book. So while John is in prison for being a Christian and preaching the gospel, Jesus shows up to him and gives him a revelation, an apocalypse. And this vision is meant to help him see through his present suffering and see into ultimate reality. And what John sees first is the resurrected, glorified Jesus who doesn't look like he used to look. He's not a poor pauper. He's not a, a, a Nazarene carpenter anymore. He is an exalted God-man, full of glory and full of splendor. And then he sees God, the center of the universe, sitting on his throne. And then he sees in the right hand of God, who's sitting on a throne, a scroll. And on that scroll is some writing, and it's sealed with seven seals. It's a legal document. This is how legal documents were created and stored in antiquity. There was that you would write your will, and then you would have seven different seals, and those seals were witnesses that the thing could only be opened if you had all seven witnesses there with you. Now, the scroll we saw last week was God's covenantal promises. What is that? It's his promise to heal the world, to save his people and to usher in a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more sin, no more death, and God will once again dwell with mankind in peace. Now, here's the problem, guys. Here's what we don't like. If we say, we all say, sign me up for peace and goodwill among men. Sign me up for a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Sign me up for no more tears. Sign me up for all sin and all, all pain to be removed from the Sign me up for that. The problem is, this is the only way for God to accomplish that. It's going to come through judgment. So then in chapter 5, an angel issues this challenge to the whole world. He says this, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals? Who's worthy to take it from the right hand of God Almighty and to enact God's promises? Who has the moral purity, the covenantal faithfulness, the righteousness to walk up to God and break and take the seal from his or the scroll from his hand and break the seals and then put God's redemptive plan into effect? The answer was crickets right? No one on the earth could answer that call. No one could open it. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So John wails. John weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But then, as I said last week, the eucatastrophe, the good news moment, the, the night where it, the spot where it gets so dark and then the light comes breaking forth. One of the elders that surround the throne told John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, this is Jesus fulfilling two Old Testament pictures of himself. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's the root of David. Then John looks up from his weeping, and he sees this, quote, A lamb standing as though it had been slain. This Two is Jesus. Jesus is the lion who conquers and the lamb who was slain. Jesus wins the right to open the scroll and break the seals and enact the covenantal promises because of his 
sacrificial death for God's people in our place for our many sins. And when this happens, John blows up in worship. He just erupts in worship and he sings out with all of heaven, quote, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Now, when did that happen? This is in the book of Revelation. When did that happen we just talked about? That happened about 2,000 years ago. When Jesus of Nazareth, the real historical person, was crucified, buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a real historical person, and then was resurrected to new life the following Sunday morning, and that started this thing called Christianity, this offshoot of Judaism that caused us to, to change our worship from Saturday to Sunday and turn the Roman Empire upside down. And I want you to see this morning that this vision that John is getting isn't just about the future. It's about ultimate reality. This is already true. This has already happened. We aren't waiting for it to be true someday. Jesus has already ransomed a people for God from every people group, and he is worthy of all our praise, all our honor, all our glory right now. But here's the question. If Jesus has already accomplished this mission, if he's already paid the price and ransomed God's people and made them priests to our God, why are they still suffering so much. Remember, a part of God's promise was that they would, quote, reign on the earth. John, as he's writing this and he's suffering in prison, he doesn't feel like he's reigning on earth, right? The first century Christians who are being violently persecuted aren't reigning on earth. As Nero throws them to the lions, they aren't reigning on earth. As they're being crucified outside the gates of Rome, they aren't reigning on earth. As they're being set on fire, they aren't reigning on earth. And if you've lived as a faithful Christian for more than a few months, you have most definitely experienced this painful reality as well. The Christian is not immune to suffering. In fact, in many ways, and in at least 40 different nations on our earth right now, Christians suffer far more than other people groups because of their faith in Jesus. Why is this the case if Jesus has already accomplished his mission and is right now reigning over all the earth in sovereign power and authority? Well, the answer is, I'll admit, it's not one we like very much. The answer is, though in one sense, the work of Jesus is absolutely accomplished. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. There is nothing more to be done to secure the salvation of God's people and the renewal of all things. To put it another way, Jesus has already won the battle, but now... He has to make that victory known in every nation and in every state and in every life. He has to work out the consequences of his ultimate victory. Historians will tell you that the Allies won World War II on the shores of Normandy. And yet it took almost a year for the Germans to finally surrender. See, D-Day, this is what they say, D-Day on the shores of Normandy was, this is what the, how historians call it, D-Day was the beginning of the end of World War II. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the beginning of the end times. 
But that salvation, the salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross still must be applied. It still must be worked out in the real world. And it's the working out of that salvation in the real world that the next few chapters are all about. Can I ask you this morning, just what do you think it will take for God to save his people, for God to renew his world into a place where he can actually dwell with us in unity? What does it actually take for that to happen? For God to make this world a place fit for him and make us a people fit for him. What's it going to take to make us ready for God? If you think, well, that's not a problem, then you don't know God and you don't know yourself. Jesus has already died for us. He's already made us right with God through faith in Jesus. He's already applied the benefits of our salvation to us through the Holy Spirit. He's already guaranteed that we will find our way into the new heavens and the new earth. But here's what remains. Here's what remains. God must make us fit for heaven. And God must judge those who refuse to worship him. And God must renew this earth. And what we're going to see, and this is pretty fascinating, is that God in his sovereignty uses the same circumstances to accomplish all those goals. Namely, suffering. For the Christian, we will suffer to make us fit for heaven. Through suffering, we learn to put our trust and our hope in God and not in created things. Through suffering, we learn that Christ is the only place secure enough to hold our eternal hope. For the person who does not trust in Jesus, we're going to see that every other container for their hope will be removed, will be destroyed. Now, this is what this is. We're on a collision course here. Our, our world is on a collision course with what this text calls the wrath of the Lamb. When I was studying this text this week, I was captured by three juxtapositional characteristics of Jesus. We see in verse 16 of chapter 6 the wrath of the Lamb. You seen any good horror movies about the wrath of the lamb? No, right? Most of our kids don't see the lamb and freak out, right? See that wrath, that lamb snarl his teeth? No, path, passive, peaceful, but the wrath of the lamb. So three juxtapositional characteristics. One, we're going to see the wrath of the lamb. Two, we're going to see the blood that makes white. And three, we're going to see the lamb who shepherds. That's where we're going to go today. We're going to get there quick. Let's start by looking at the wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like, Thunder, come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Now, how many of you have heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Raise your hand if you've heard of the four horsemen. It's common, kind of common vernacular. Well, here they are in all their wicked glory. We have a white horse. We have a black horse. We have a red horse. And we have a pale horse, a horse that looks like a corpse. The white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, many people wrongly assume that this is somehow Jesus because he's on a white horse, and Jesus shows up on a white horse later. But this is not Jesus. All four of these horsemen are wicked, and they are evil, and they bring destruction upon the earth. The white horse is meant to be kind of a pseudo-savior. This is the horse of conquest and the horse of war that afflicts the world as we know it, 
how much time do I have? I'm really up here trying to figure this out as I go. I've got way too much, I got way too much up here. I'm just saying. So I'm trying to figure out what to cut and what not to cut. So let me, we've already read it, so I'm just going to go over. That's the white horse, okay? War. The white horse represents war that's going out in the world, okay? The black horse represents civil unrest. People will rise up against people and kill each other. So there's going to be the civil rest that's going on, specifically also a persecution of Christians. Third, you have this red horse, and this red horse represents famine on the earth. And lastly, the pale horse with his it says this rider is death and Hades follows with him. Hades is the place of the dead. This horse is a summary of the first three horses. So basically what happens when these horses get unleashed on the earth is death happens. That's what happens. Death through war, death through famine, death through disease, death through persecution and civil unrest. Now there's three things I want you to see about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Number one, John is not inventing anything new here. He did not have, you know, some bad mushrooms on his pizza that day and just see these horses and ride them down, okay? All of this stuff that we're going to read has its inception in the Old Testament. The horses are from Zechariah 6. I would love to take you there. I don't have the time. Read Zechariah 6 today if you want to find out more. The woes that they bring on the earth, that's from Ezekiel chapter 14. You can go look that up. Now listen, here's the thing that drives me crazy. We, I had somebody tell me, man, don't, don't, don't preach to the book of Revelation. Just preach on what Jesus talks about. Preach on, you know, loving God and loving your neighbor and being nice to one another and, you know, the golden rule. And I, I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, except the only problem is Jesus taught on Revelation. Right? In Matthew chapter 24, verses one, really the whole chapter, everything we see that's happening in our chapters in Revelation, Jesus said was going to happen at the end of the age. He talked about false messiahs coming. He talked about stars falling out of the sky. He talked about the moon turning to blood red. He talked about Christians being persecuted. Everything we see in the book of Revelation is extrapolated, is in line with what Christ taught in Matthew chapter 24. So this isn't something tertiary, something extra that just slapped on at the end of the Bible. What we see going on right now in the book of Revelation is a part of the narrative of the whole Bible. It's a key piece of the entire storyline. It's a necessary component for the renewal of all things. Judgment has to happen. The wrath of the lamb has to be poured out. So the first thing, John isn't inventing anything new. Secondly, this isn't just something that's going to happen in the future. Let me say it like this. All of these writers are currently writing. Right? Survey the world. You will find wars. You will find civil unrest. You will find famines and you will find death. These aren't just things that are going to show up the day before Jesus comes. They're happening right now. Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you look at the world and you see wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff, that's what he said. They are, the end is not yet, is what Jesus says. They're the beginning of birth pain. Now, ladies, every lady knows when you get birth pains, it means two things. Number one, it means finally, right? Baby's coming. But it also means, oh boy, it's about to get real difficult, real fast, right? It means the end is coming, but it end isn't here yet. We might have, oh, we might have a day of intense labor yet ahead of us. I, I don't mean to be causing any pregnant women's hands to be sweating right now, okay? Don't mean to do that, all right? But birth pains, the beginning of birth pains means we still got a long ways to go. We've got a lot of hard labor ahead of us, but the end is on the way. Christ says when these things show up in intensity, it's not the end yet, but it is the beginning of birth pains. 
They're the signs, listen, that new life is on the way. But it could still be some time yet. And just like birth pains, these pains will get more intense just before Christ comes back. So secondly, all these writers are currently active. Three, who is in control of all this chaos? Jesus is. Jesus isn't causing the death and suffering, but the text makes it perfectly clear that Jesus allows the writer, he permits the writer, he even gives a crown to the writer, signifying he has authority for right now to do what he's called to do. You have authority on the earth right now, a, a, a subjugated authority, a relegated authority. Jesus has death in Hades on a leash, but, that, but, but death in Hades is still allowed to run and roam and destroy the earth. Jesus permits the writer to take peace from the earth. And Jesus gave these writers the authority to kill one-fourth of the world's population with sword and famine and the beasts of the earth. So Jesus is in control of the chaos. Look at verse 9. First four seals are the four horsemen. The fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. This is martyrs. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, why are these people crying out? Are they angry? Are they bitter? No. They're in the presence of God. They're not angry. They're not bitter. They have eyes that's, that can see unlike ours. Ours, we look at the wrath of God and we say, how could a nice God do that? Well, whoever said God was nice, for one, He's holy and he's loving. When God brings his wrath on the world, he's bringing justice. How do you get justice for the oppressed without destroying the oppressor? How do you get it? You can't get it. You can't get peace on earth without the sword. Now, here's the deal. This is not a call for the church to take up arms by any means. This isn't a militant call for the church to go and conquer the world some imperialistic way. No, 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 no. This is a call to be patient and wait for God to judge. Wait for God to bring peace on earth. Keep reading. Then they were each given a white robe. So these martyred Christians were given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers, look, should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Jesus Christ is sovereign over the murder of his own servants. Not only that, is there is a set number of martyrs who must be killed for their faith. And I don't know, but it seems like when that last martyr is killed for their faith, then Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead. Now, Gordon Conwell released a study. They release a study every year on the global impact of Christianity and the world religions, actually. And here's what they just, they released last year. In the last 10 years, 900,000 Christians have been killed. 900,000. Is that in your newsfeed very often? 70% of those are in tribal conflicts in Africa. But I bet you probably did have something break through your newsfeed in the past few weeks, and that's John Chow, the missionary to the Sentinelese people who was shot full of arrows as he was trying to bring the gospel to the Sentinelese people. Now, this has been mocked 
This has been maligned. Now, and there's a lot of new research coming out that this, this guy was not some idiot, some backwoods missionary that just felt like he was going to get out and holler to people that Jesus loves you and then run and then they were going to accept him when they don't even speak his language. He had been praying for years. He had been prepared for years. He, we might disagree with his methods. He probably should have went with some kind of team. He probably should have had, there's a lot of different things he could have possibly done. But this is a man who knew what he was doing and he believed what we're reading in our text today, that it's not a fairy tale. He believed that the blood of Christ had ransomed people from every tribe on earth. And it was his calling to bring the gospel to the Centralese people, hopefully believing that God would save some of them. Now, he had his, his all of his immunization and all that stuff was up to date because we know they don't have, I'm not going to get into all that this morning. What I want to get into is our society hates the thought that anyone needs to be converted. Leave those people alone on the island. They've been there. They're not harming anybody. Without Christ, they're under the wrath of God. They're under the judgment of God. They need the gospel. 900,000 people have been martyred in the past 10 years. This is still going on today. Verse 12. Then he opened the sixth seal. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth just like a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings, so what's going on right here? This is a reversal of Genesis 1. This is a decreation. Here's what it's like. This is any time, so we, we build homes, we live in those homes, we bring children into those homes, and, in those home, and those children destroy those homes, <laughs> right? That's what happens, right? My house, I just apologize, come on in. My house used to be nice, come on in, right? Don't worry about that. I scrubbed that on the table, I couldn't get it off. <laughs> My bad, I need an angle grinder. I'll get it later, right? Can't do that every night. We destroy our homes. What happens? Our homes need what? They need remodeling. That's what they need. Now, that is a microcosm of an eternal reality, that our world is broken. Our world has been infected by sin. Our world has been ruined through our own efforts, right? Through not only just pollution and, and the human problem, but through wars and through famine and through all kind of horrible things. And here's the reality. The world needs remodeled. We all would say yes to that. But here's what happens on day one of the remodel. It's demo day. It's demo day. When, when, you, when the remodel needs to happen, they, get, they come in with sledgehammers. You don't tell the contractor, come on in, um, but just don't make a mess. It's impossible. When Christ comes back to renew this world, it's demo day. He rolls up the sky like a scroll. The stars fall out of the sky. The moon turns blood red. The earth shakes and trembles. It's a remodeling. It's not a destruction project. It's a remodeling project. This is called the great day of God's wrath. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the powerful, the rich, the wealthy, the movers and shakers, and the great ones, and the generals, the, the war lords, the leaders, the powerful, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free. It's the democratization of mankind. Look, look what happens. Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, 
fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's the question. Who can stand before the wrath of the lamb? When Christ comes back to renew this earth and to really demo day this earth, who can stand? And what you see is here. Every other container that you put your hope in will ultimately be destroyed. See, the rich put their hope in their wealth, but on the day of the Lord's wrath, their wealth can buy them nothing. They hide and they cry for the rocks to fall on them. Their earthly power, their political power, it can buy them nothing. Can I ask you this morning, what do you put your hope in? When God brings his judgment upon this earth, those who put their hope in money or power or in any created thing, all of their hope will be lost because all those created things will be destroyed and shown to be nothing. False gods cannot save you from the wrath of the real God. C.S. Lewis says it like this. There is but one good, that's God. Hear this, we need this, we need this perspective. There, Jesus said this himself, who's, who's good? Only God alone is good. Listen, there is only one that is good, that's God. Now here's, here's, the, here's the key we need to hear. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. That's reality. Everything is, he is the only one that's good. When we look to him, put our hope in him, we are good. If we reject him and run away from him, we are bad and therefore we will be under the wrath of God as God, renew, as God takes evil off this planet. Okay, goodness gracious. Now this is really interesting. In the midst of this terror, in the midst of this destruction, God gives, God like takes his mind, John's mind off of it for one moment and gives him a picture of the church. Gives him a picture of God's people. Now why is that the case? Because we see all this terror, we see all this pain, we see all this wrath, and we all look into ourselves and go, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Not me. I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm broken. I can't stand before the wrath of the Lamb. Well, here's our answer. He looks, and in chapter 7, he sees these, the four angels. That's basically the four horsemen, or the, uh, the four winds of the earth of the four horsemen. They're going out. They're doing all kind of stuff. I'm not going to get into that. Then you go through all these tribes, right? 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. It's, it's symbolizing the full number. We have the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, right? The 12 apostles in the New Testament. This number 12 just symbolizes the full number. Many people go off and they think 144,000. Okay, there must be like only 144,000 people that are going to be saved. Or maybe there's 144,000 pe Jewish people that are going to get re... Listen, he shows us, he makes it very clear it's a symbolic number. He goes through all this, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, and then look in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Hey! From every nation, from all tribes, from all people, from all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, look, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation, salvation, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who can stand before the throne? Salvation can be found. There is salvation. Who does it belong to? God himself. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory. You guys are getting tired of this. But I don't get tired of it. We're I mean, not going to get tired of it. We're going to keep singing this over and over. Amen. Blessing. 
and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might and, 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 and. That's, what it, that's what's going on there. Anything else I can say, throw it in there. You deserve everything. Amen. Look, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to them, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now this is what we see. Chapter seven is about this. God is able to keep his people faithful. He will not let them be lost. Though they may suffer the loss of many things, including their life, they will not lose faith. They will not lose heaven, all because they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So here's the question. Who or what can save us from the wrath of the Lamb? Verse 14 shows us. Only the blood of the Lamb. Now this is interesting. The Son of God is sent into the world of men. He becomes a human man in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus then lives the life that every single human being should live, a life of worship and devotion to God. Jesus never sins against God. He always does what is good, right, and perfect. But listen, Jesus didn't come to the earth as just as our example. He didn't come to earth just to show us how to live. The primary reason Jesus came to earth was to save God's people from their many sins. This is why when John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, saw Jesus when, when John was baptizing people, right? He sees Jesus walk up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to do what we could not do. He lived a perfect life by doing everything that God asked him to do, and then he took our place, listen, under the wrath of God. He took our place before the judgment seat of God, and Jesus bore in his body the consequences of our many sins. That's why he, they're saying he's the Lamb of God. Jesus, as the lamb who would be slain, took the, took the wrath of God that was meant for us because of our many sins. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus took the full weight of the just wrath of God against sin. See, the problem is we try to divide the world and good and bad people, and it usually goes with our political camp or maybe even our churches or our other. We try to divide the world, and we say, I'm okay with those people being put to death. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with those people being judged or being isolated. It could be the rapists. It could be the murderers. It could be the Republicans. It could be the Democrats. We all have our own little thing. We say, I'm okay with those people. The problem is who can stand under the wrath of God? Evil doesn't just, it's not just isolated to those groups. Evil runs through the heart of every single person. Every single one of us deserve the wrath of God because we've pushed away from his glory. We've turned away from him and said, I'm not really interested in you. I don't really care what you have to say. Every one of us, therefore, are under the wrath of God. Listen, let me, give you, let me give you your money's worth since you guys helped me get through seminary. Here's the $10 theological word. It's called propitiation. It's called propitiation. What it means, it's a legal term, and it means when you commit a crime, there is a just consequence to that crime. There is a wrath that needs to be poured out. We don't like the word wrath. We think it's somehow out of control. We think wrath is like, foaming at the mouth, un, out of control, crazy. That's not what Jesus is doing. Everything is measured. Everything is meted out, metered out perfect in perfect justice here in this situation. There is no crazy. There is, oh, you did this crime, there's this reward. Well, here is it is. If you've sinned against God, the requirement is your death. 
That's the wrath of God. God can't renew the earth. God can't make all things new. God can't have peace on earth because you're there in all your problems and all your pains and all your situations, right? We created a happy room and then you walked into it. Guess what? You brought all your pain with you, didn't you? Man, it's hot in here. Man, it's cold in here. Man, I'm hungry. Man, I'm not. Man, we bring our problems with us wherever we go. That's the problem. So what does God do? God has to renew us and God has to restore us and God has to restore the world. And he does that through his wrath. Now let me show you one scripture, John 3, 36. This is Jesus. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Pause. Many of us just stop there. And we think that's the gospel. That's a piece of the gospel. That's not the whole gospel. Keep reading. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. It means you put your faith in Christ and then you live it out. Then you, you're changed. You live differently. You follow Jesus. Look, but if you don't obey the Son, if you don't follow Jesus, look, what it, look but the wrath of God, what, what is that word? Remains. The wrath of God remains remains on us. See, propitiation is this. When we put our faith in Christ, Christ went before the judgment seat of God and God poured out the wrath that was destined for us. The just punishment for our sins was poured out on Jesus and now the wrath of God is satisfied in Christ. That's the word of propitiation, satisfied. But if you do not put your faith in Christ, that means the wrath of God has not been satisfied on your behalf. That means at the end of time or at your death, the wrath of God will be satisfied in sending you to hell away from God. Jesus didn't die just to show us how awesome we were, how much God loved us. He died to pay a price. He died to satisfy the wrath of God for God's people. So what do we see here? Listen, who can stand before the wrath of God? Only those who've been washed in the blood of Christ. I can stand under the wrath because Christ took the wrath for me. I can stand not because I'm better, not because I'm smarter, not because I'm more educated, not because I've read something. I can stand because Christ took the wrath for me, satisfied the wrath of God for me. There is only one place that's safe from the wrath of the Lamb, and that's under the blood of the Lamb. Now, we see from this text, <clears throat> Christians still suffer, but God promises that our suffering will always be redemptive. It will always end with us in the presence of God being totally renewed and living in eternity with him. As I close this morning, the last thing we see, the last juxtaposition of Jesus we see is the lamb who shepherds. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God, look, and they serve him day and night. Those who have been forgiven and he who sits on the throne, look, will shelter them with his presence because they're under the blood of the lamb. They shall hunger no more. Oh, praise God. They'll thirst. They won't thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them. That means the sun won't hurt them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne, Jesus will be their shepherd. And look, he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Here, Jesus isn't promising the Christian an easy life. He isn't guaranteeing them that they won't be persecuted for their faith. We may lose our jobs. We may be marginalized in society. We may even be killed for our faith. In many countries of the world, it's happening right now. But if we remain faithful to Jesus, the lamb will be our shepherd. 
and he will lead us to springs of living water where God himself will wipe away every tear from our eye. That in the end, for the Christian, everything sad in this life will eventually come untrue. C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, they say of some, they say of our temporal suffering, no future bliss could ever make up for the pain that I'm going through now, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. This is the promise. Now, let me read the last five verses. No, I'm not going to read the last five verses. I just changed my mind. But it's pretty spectacular. You read this. Listen, when the seventh seal is opened, silence in heaven for half an hour. Why? The angels, the redeemed people, they're speechless. You look at our world, everyone believes this. Don't, if we really look at our world, don't we really look at it and go, who can fix this thing? Who can fix this thing? Yeah, every, you know, politician stands up and goes, it's me and my party. We know it's not you and your party. We look at our broken world and we're like, who can fix this? What is it going to take to fix this? God shows us what it's going to take. It took the blood of the lamb. It took the son of God dying for humanity. And it takes his second coming. And when they see that, silence. As I close, I want to say this. Everybody suffers in this life. Everybody does. And in the end, all of us dies. Last time I checked, the mortality rate is still 100%. And in the grand scheme of things, there are only three possible ways to view your suffering and death. Number one, secular humanists will tell you there is no God. Look at the world. It's broken. It's spinning out of control. They say it, it's just random. It's male malevolent. It doesn't care about you. There is no God. So all your suffering is meaningless. The death, the persecution, the painful stuff, it's meaningless. It's random. Just don't think about it. Just ignore it. Yeah, you're going to die someday and you're going to become nothing, but just ignore it. Have a fun life right now. It's an impossible way to live. It's a worldview that can't be actually lived out. We have to live like we have meaning. All of us want to live like we're going to exist somewhere after we die. We know there's got to be something more than this. So one, suffering is just random. Number two, the other option is suffering is retributive. You do good, good things happen to you. You do bad, bad things happen to you. Now, the problem with that is we know there are many times where we feel like we're doing good and maybe we are doing good and suffering still comes and pain still comes. So you're going to spend your whole life trying to measure up to some standard, trying to be good enough to keep suffering at bay, and still in the end you will realize that you can't. Suffering comes for us all. So you can view God as mean and as somehow unjust and, and giving you more, than you more than you deserve or something that you don't deserve. You could get bitter when suffering still wraps its hands around your throat eventually. Or here, listen, through this thing that we call the gospel, the good news of what I've shared today of what Christ has done and what Christ is going to do. Listen, suffering can be redemptive. We can say just how God used the suffering of his son to save people from their sins. Maybe he's using my suffering for something good that I can't see. It seems meaningless. It seems pointless. It seems evil. But maybe because look at the worst thing that ever happened to any human being happened to the son of God. May, and God brought light out of that. Maybe he's going to do something with me. Maybe Heaven will work backwards and turn even this momentary pain into something I can see as a glory. There's only three options. Suffering's random, suffering's retributive, or some suffering is redemptive.
What's your choice this morning? Father, I thank you for your word, though it's difficult. Though sometimes it comes as a stark revelation, like we're laying in, a, in our beds and, the, and it's pitch black and somebody walks in and hits the light and it, 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 it's sharp to us sometimes. It's still a welcome revelation because it is ultimate reality. It's where we're headed. I pray this morning that you would cause us all in this room and those online to find the shelter from the wrath of the Lamb under the blood of the Lamb. That we're all in need of redemption. We're all in need of salvation. And that salvation belongs to you. Father, I'm, I'm just reminded that Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, on the night that you drank the cup of the wrath of God for us, you sat down with your disciples and you broke bread and you said, this bread is my body broken for you and this wine is my blood that's shed for you. The unifying sacrament that you gave us to renew our covenant week in and week out shows us that we serve a God who suffers. Shows us that our Savior absorbed and satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Father, help us eat it worshipfully this morning. Bring us to repentance. Help us confess our sins. Let us eat and worship of you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.